I was about seven years old at the, at the time. I was known as a quiet kid. I was known as a very respectful kid and a very timid and shy kid. Uh, my parents were huge disciplinarians. Uh, respect wasn't just taught, it was brought. You know, I mean, it was brought upon us strongly. <laughs> the kind of brought on strongly, like you had absolutely no choice. The kind of brought on that was clear that you were the child and they were the parents. Uh, one day, the women's ministry were gathering at our pastor's house uh, for some prayer. And some of the mothers brought their children with them. And so I rock on up with my mom and I meet my friend, my, my mates there. And we're like, yeah. And so we go into the pastor's house. And what you need to understand about our pastor's house at the time is that they've got this long hallway and you could play bull rush in this hallway. And so we start to gather in there and we start to play a game of rolling the ball. Now, in the middle of this hallway, this, our, our pastor had this amazing, beautifully looking uh, chandelier in the middle of the hallway. And so we decide we're going to play roll the ball with a massive red yoga ball. So we start to roll the ball across, roll it back. And then I decide I'm going to kick the ball. So I kick the ball, but just enough to get it rolling and not leave the ground. My friend decides he's going to bomb the ball. So he's like FIFA style getting ready. And he goes and kicks the ball. It leaves the ground. It touches the beautiful chandelier and it shatters to a million pieces. Not only that, but the electricity goes out. The next thing you know, the mother's ministry come running into the house. And you need to know that the mother's ministry back then, you know, like they were quite strict, you know, that they're not going to be, we are uh, back in church, mother's ministry were dedicated to looking after the kids. And so they didn't need to walk on over to let you know that you're being naughty. They had a long stick. And so if they needed to get your attention, you would feel their attention if they needed to get you to let you know you're making too much noise. And so you can imagine my horror and my, my fear, the mother's ministry come rushing into the house. And so the lady says, one of the ladies says, what happened? Who did it? And my friend goes, it was Don. He kicked the ball and it hit the, the chandelier and it just shattered. And I'm standing there going, what? Like, I'm absolutely shocked. I'm frozen. I cannot believe that my friend just lied on me. And so you know what happened next. My mom is standing there. She's got a smile on her face. But I know what, what's going to happen when we get home. Anyway, we go home. Long story short, um, not only was I, I went from being known as this quiet, respectful kid to the naughtiest kid in church. I was now known as the naughtiest kid in church who broke the chandelier at the pastor's house. And now every time I catch up with my old church friends, they're like, hey, remember the time that you broke it? Hey, I didn't break no chandelier up in there. Have you ever been in a situation where someone has lied about you to someone else, but now it's got everybody else looking side-eye at you? If anybody has ever lied on you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a horrible feeling. In this world that we live, we are surrounded by words Words are everywhere. They're on the road signs. They're on newspapers. They're in emails. They're on our phones. They're on clothing. They're in books. They're on the TV, social media. Words are spoken. Words are everywhere. Words are important. But more often than not, these words that we are being surrounded by are not always true. In fact, you don't need to look far to realize that society is losing the expectation that words will be true. We've now gotten to the point where we second guess anything anyone in the public arena says because we've seen how uh, people lie in sports and people lie in politics and people lie in the media. And guess what? No one seems to be surprised anymore. Lying is so prevalent at this point, we doubt almost any claim or any word that is being spoken in the public spheres. But things have gotten so bad that we've even started to lie about lying. You know, we tell a lie and say, so we've got to tell another lie to cover up that first lie and then another lie to, to cover up this lie and the other lie and the other lie. 
Before you, you know it, uh, alibis have been invented, qualifications have been enhanced, statistics have been massaged, uh, excuses have been manufactured, we become creative with expenditure. It's just one thing after another. We lie at work when we're late from our lunch break, we lie about who broke the phot photocopier, we lie to the doctor and say, yes, I did exercise three times this week. Uh, we lie when we've been pulled over and, and we say to the cop, oh, I didn't realize I was driving 20 kilometers over the speed limit. I mean, our children are even starting to say things like, honest to who? Honest to who? Say G-O-D, say Bible, honest to who? Because they too have been touched by what it means to be lied to, to be told lies, to lie. We've just become experts at lying. To make matters worse, the explosion of digital technology and the internet has just opened up a whole new world for lying. I'm not even going to go down that whole lane of hot mess and photoshopping and cropping and filtering. That's a message for another day. But I hope you get the point. Lying has become so universal that to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth is almost impossible. You see, our use of truth affects our relationship with others. Lies are not just wrong. They hurt people. The very people made in the image of God. You know, a theologian of the word puts it this way. Do not steal ties our hands from taking people's properties, but do not lie ties our tongues from taking people's reputation. Because the truth is, anytime that a lie is being said about you, what it is actually doing is killing your reputation. It is killing your character. And even worse, when the lie gets repeated over and over and over and over and over again, people eventually start to believe it. And when people start to believe it, they start to think that you're full of yourself and that you've, you're only motivated by self-interest. And when that starts to happen, you start to find that nobody trusts you and no one trusts what you say. Lies are a big time killer of marriages, big time killer of relationships, big time killer of friendships, communities, families, workplaces, churches, nations. Here's why. Because lies breed cynicism and cynicism corrodes trust. When there is no trust in any relationship, it will not survive. And so how are we, the people of God, supposed to survive and thrive and flourish in community, in our relationships, in our homes, in our walk, in a society where the truth is decaying. Let's encourage ourselves with the word of God. Today, we're looking at the ninth commandment and it tackles the whole issue of truth and lies and their effect on the people around us. Here's what the ninth commandment say, Exodus uh, 20, 16. You shall not be a false witness against your neighbor. You shall not be a false witness against your neighbor. God bless the reading of his word. Now, the immediate context of today's text is within the covenant community of God in the court of, uh, community of God in the court of law. This scripture is to do with legal context where God is wanting to uphold the truth in the courts. If justice is going to prevail, the witnesses must speak the truth. You see, in ancient times, there weren't any lie detectors. There, were, there was nothing such as forensic science in order to substantiate evidence or proof about a, a, a particular event that happened. And so they would rely on the testimony and witness of individuals in order to establish a charge. In other words, witnesses were the evidence. 
And so therefore, in ancient Israel's legal system, there needed to be a number of divine guidelines that were followed in order to secure the truth from the witnesses. Uh, one, The first thing was they had to have more than one witness. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, you must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. The second thing was there was penalty for perjury. In order for them to ensure that nobody was about to lie up in that uh, witness, stand, anyone giving a false testimony would be sentenced to the same punishment that would have been imposed on the accused. Deuteronomy 19.16-19 to says, if a malicious witness comes forward and accuses someone of a crime, then both the accuser and accused must appear before the Lord by coming to the priests and judges in office at the time. The judges must investigate the case thoroughly. If the accuser has brought false charges against his fellow Israelite, you must impose on the accuser the sentence he intended for the other person. In this way, you will purge such evil things from you. The third thing they had to do was witnesses were participants in execution. It was one thing to accuse someone of a crime, but it was another thing to be required to initiate the execution of the accused upon conviction. Uh, Deuteronomy 17.7 says, the witnesses must throw the first stones and then all the people may join in. In this way, you will purge the evil from among you. Fourth, there was a proclamation requirement. It meant that anybody who withheld valuable evidence that could influence a case would be guilty of sin. In other words, witnesses were required to volunteer their testimonies. Leviticus 5 verse 1 says, if you are called to testify about something you have seen or that you know about, it is sinful to refuse to testify and you will be punished for your sin. That's extremely intense, isn't it? That's the immediate context of our text today. But before you go on thinking oh, that the ninth commandment is only applicable in a court of law, think again, because this reaches even into the pews. You don't need no judge. You don't need no jury, no lawyers to be a false witness. All you need is a community of people. All you need is a family, friends, school, work, small group, and church. And so to better understand the depth of the ninth commandment, I want us to uh, just do a quick deep study for just a moment. The word false in our text this morning is the Hebrew word shekhar. The word shekhar is a packed word because it has many possible renderings in English. For example, it's used to refer to this idea of false prophecy. We see in the book of Jeremiah that shekhar is being used a lot to refer to that which the prophets spoke when they are not being sent by God. Simply put, shekhar is used in Jeremiah to refer to a situation where a prophet was not prophesying, but prophesying, where the prophet would be making messages up and saying that this was from the Lord. Jeremiah 14, 14 says, And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies, shekhar, in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false shekhar vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. Shekhar is also used to uh, refer to this idea of idols. Uh, it was used to refer to the objects that brought about deception and deceit upon the people because these objects were dead. They were void and empty. Habakkuk 2.18 says, What good is an idol carved by man or a cast image that deceives Shekhar you? How foolish to trust in your own creation, a God that can't even talk. Shekhar is also used to refer to lies. The word, it's, it's often described as lying lips or a lying tongue. In Proverbs, we find that shekhar is one of the things that the Lord hates. Proverbs 6, 16 to 17, it says, There are six things that the Lord hates, no seven things He detests, haughty eyes, a lying shekhar tongue, hands that kill the innocent. 
Finally, Shekhar is this idea of being misled. It's used in the story of Nabal and David. David looked after Nabal's sheep. David sends a message to Nabal and says, you know, when your men were in Carmel, we never harmed them or took anything from them. But since we've arrived on your turf and you guys are celebrating, please share any of the, the provisions that you may have with us. Nabal responds to David and says, why would I give my bread and water to a bunch of outlaws who come from, you know, who knows where? And so in response, David says in 1 Samuel 25, 21, surely in vain, Shechah, I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him and he has repaid me evil for good. Shechah here is being portrayed as this idea of something being pointless, something being done in vain, something that was a waste of time. Shechah therefore means Words or activities that are false in the sense of being without basis in fact or reality. It means to speak words and carry out actions that are groundless. That are, they are words that are of deception. They are words that deceive. They are words uh, for self, spoken for self-gain. They are words of falsehood that break covenants and commitments. In other words, these actions and words are like balloons full of hot air. There is no substance to it. It is empty. It is void. It cannot be grounded on anything. So if lying has no substance, is empty and is void, why do we even do it? Now, there are many reasons why we shakir or lie, but one of the reasons we do this, we lie is we lie to deny. In his book, The Ten, here's what evangelist J. John says. We use lies to cover up who we really are and what our problems genuinely are. We often think about lying in terms of deceiving other people, but one of the biggest problems is that liars deceive themselves. We refuse to see our own guilt. It is always someone else's fault. Almost anything is preferable to admitting that we are guilty. We shift responsibility to my parents, my school, my genes, my hormones. Of course, we are all products of our environment and background. Some people have been through the most appalling circumstances and we need to take account of that. But sometimes people don't face the truth of who they are and what they have done simply because they don't want to take responsibility for it. It's not my fault is an ancient plea. We've seen it at the beginning of time. Adam and Eve disobey God and instead of own directions, they hide. They try to get away from the consequences of what they've done. When God asks Adam, what is this that you've done? He says, it's the woman that you brought me, you, you gave me, it's her fault. And then God says to the woman, what is this you've done? And she says, it's the serpent. The serpent deceived me. And so there in the very first breaking of a command given by God, it all started. The great human trait of ducking responsibility. Blame it on somebody else. Blame it on something else, anything else but me. You see, this urge and this temptation that we feel to lie comes from the desire to protect ourselves from the truth that shows us what we really are. Because to face the truth would be the moral equivalent of walking out of darkness and into the light. To shekher, therefore, simply means to forsake truth. And to forsake truth is to forsake the author of truth and to make the decision to partner with the author of lies. You see, the God who created you and me, the God who created us in the likeness of His image is a God of truth. And so if we are to reflect our creator, the God of truth, how do you think we do this? Through truth. 
It means that to lie is to reflect someone who was not our creator. Jesus is, uh, there's a story in the Bible about Jesus who's teaching a group of people who don't believe anything that Jesus is saying. And so Jesus says to them, you are my disciples if you remain in me and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But the people say, well, we're the descendants of Abraham. We're no slaves to nobody. And Jesus says, well, I tell you now, anybody who sins is a slave to sin. Now I realize that y'all are descendants of Abraham, but you don't act like it because you're out here trying to kill me for telling the truth. You're not following the advice of Abraham. You're following the advice of your father. And the people respond to Jesus and say, Abraham is our father. Jesus says to them, no, if you were really the children of Abraham, you'd be following his example. But again, you're out here trying to kill me for speaking the truth. No, you're imitating your real father. The people respond to Jesus and they say, well, we're not illegitimate children anyway, Jesus. God is our father. And Jesus responds, and here's what he says, John 8, 42 to 47. If God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God, hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Talk about a mic drop moment. You see, we cannot simply say that we're people of God and yet forsake truth. Because to forsake truth is to imitate not the author of truth, but the author of lies. You need to know today that to bear false witness against your neighbor is to pattern yourself, not after God, not after the father of truth, but to bear false witness is to pattern yourself after the father of lies, the devil. So every single person who calls him a believer in this place, if you've forgotten who you are and who your father is and who it is that you're meant to be imitating, God got me here this morning to remind you exactly who you are. You are in Christ Jesus. You are a new creation. You are an imitator of Christ. It's no longer you who lives, but it's Christ who lives on the, on the inside of you. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're a people for His own possession. You're more than a conqueror. You're an overcomer. You are blameless before Him. You are filled in Him. You are the temple of God. You are rooted and built up in Christ Jesus. You were bought with a price. You are children of the light. You are of incorruptible seed. You have been brought near by God through the blood of Jesus. And so because of that, you are not a bearer of false witness. You speak the truth in love. Turn to the person next to you and say, that's who I is. That's who I is. <laughs> if we, the people of God, are going to survive and thrive and flourish in community, in our relationships, in our homes, in our walk, in a society where the truth is decaying, here's what we're going to need to do. You need to have your brothers back. Have your sisters back. Have your fathers back. Have your mothers back. Have your leaders back. Have your aunties back. Have your uncles back. And you may ask me this morning, how do we do that? How do we have each other's back? 
How do I live my life having my brother and my sisters back? I want to share three practical points with you this morning. Number one, shun gossip. Shun gossip. You shall not be a false witness. The word bear in our text today is the Hebrew word ana, which means to heed, pay attention to, to speak, announce, sing, shout, testify, repeat, pass along. Therefore, you shall not be a false witness can be translated as you shall not heed lies. Don't pay attention to lies. Don't speak lies. Don't announce lies. Don't sing lies. Don't shout lies. Don't testify it. Don't repeat it. Don't even pass it along. Do none of these things. The best way to kill gossip is to never repeat it. Don't just simply listen to it and let it go on. Shut it down. Whenever someone starts a sentence like, did you hear about what happened to you? Don't even give them a moment to finish. I'm sorry, sir, but the person you're talking about is my brother. And because I love my brother, if you cannot say this to him, then you cannot say it to me. Because what starts as an assumption ends up becoming a question of concern that then becomes a conversation that then turns into a petty prayer request. You better get somewhere and sit down with that. Proverbs 17 verse 4 says this, Wrongdoers, they eagerly listen to gossip, and liars, they pay close attention to slander. That's not who you are. If you really think about it, it was false witness that ultimately sent our Savior to the cross. Everything he had spoken was truth, but everywhere he went, the people murmured, rumors began, false accusations were made, and before you knew it, an innocent man was being crucified. Shekhar, false witness, gossip, is destructive. Proverbs 26 verse 20 says, fire goes out without wood and quarrels disappear when gossip stops. If we want quarrels and drama to stop, the gossip has to stop. Don't even give gossip a second to breathe the same air as you and get comfortable in the same space as you. Don't give gossip none of your time. You're too busy out here trying to win people to the kingdom. Amen. If I can ask the keys to join me. The second thing I want you to do, encourage encourage, encourage, encourage. Pastor Alan Redpath of Moody Memorial Church, he gives us a, a simple yet profound way that we can be encouraging with our words. We can simply do this by giving ourselves this thing called a think test. Think is spelt T-H-I-N-K. And he created an acronym for this. And here's what it says. Before you go to speak or say anything or respond to anything, ask yourself, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Let this be your gauge before you respond to something that someone says. Let it be your gauge before you even utter a word to somebody. Let it be your gauge uh, when you're in the middle of conversation. Let it be your gauge when you're on social media, before you hit send, before you hit share, before you hit post. Let it be your gauge. Is what I'm going to say true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? And if it isn't, probably not worth posting, eh? And I thought it would be quite good for us to give this a go right now. Let's give it a go. Here are a couple of phrases that I've uh, had said to me a few times in, in my walk with the Lord that I thought were an awesome example. Here's the first one. You've put on the beef. Is it true? Probably. Is it helpful? No. Is it inspiring for all the wrong reasons? Is it necessary? No. Is it kind? No. Is it worth saying? Probably not. Here's my second favorite one. Haven't seen you in church in a while. Is it true? First and foremost, why is that even the question? This, is that your job? No. Uh, the, the next one, H, is it, is it helpful? No. 
Is it inspiring? No, I don't want to come back to church if you're going like, to greet me at the door with that. N, is it necessary? No. K, K, is it kind? No. So not even worth saying it, eh? I don't want you to make the same mistake that I made, though. You know, when your wife asks you, honey, do I look big in these jeans? Don't even think. Don't even do this. <laughs> Pray for rapture. Lord, take me now. <laughs> if we're going to have each other's back, we're going to need to be encouraging with our words. First Thessalonians 5 verse 11 says, so encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. Third and finally, I want to close with this point. It actually says number one. This was meant to be my number one point, but I've changed it and made it number three. Stay close to God. Stay close to God. When you stay close to God, you make it your priority to please Him. You just constantly want to live your life for God because you love Him. When you stay close to God, everything in your life that is out of alignment begins to click into alignment. Everything to do with the fabric of who you are begins to naturally pattern itself after God. The Bible says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And so because you walk in so much close proximity with God, you come to realize that you never stop losing sight of the fact that you can't love God and not love people because people are made in the image of God. 1 John 4, 20 to 21 says, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people, we can see. How can we love God whom we cannot see? And He has given us this command, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. There's an old Christian song that I want to close with that says, walk with thee. And the lyrics are, I am weak, but thou art strong. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk close to thee. And then the chorus says, Just a closer walk with thee. Granted, Jesus is my plea. Daily walking close to thee. Let it be, dear Lord, let it be. Whenever you start to feel like you're starting to lose your love for your brother and you're struggling to have your brother's back, draw close to God. Because when you come in close proximity with God, you just can't help but walk in close proximity with your brother. You just can't help but love your brother. You just can't help but care for your brother. Imagine a church that is full of life, that is vibrant, that is welcoming, a church that is known for the sense of faithfulness and loyalty that its people have for one another, a church that fully reflects the heart of the Father, a church that is full of encouragement, full of love, full of zeal and passion to see others grow in the things of God, a church so on fire for God that don't just hear the Word of God, but do the Word of God, a church that is marked by God's presence, a church that is set apart, a church that looks like Jesus, church that is who you were created to be. And if we're going to continue to be a church who reflect God to the world, then we're going to do it not by bearing false witness, but by shunning gossip, encouraging one another, and staying close to God. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. We never like to close our service without giving people an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I'm far away from God. I've 
don't know what it is to be in a relationship with Jesus or to accept him as my Lord, I want to give you this opportunity this morning. The truth is God loves you and he created you. He created you to enjoy a relationship with him. He created you to connect with him. But the Bible talks about a barrier that keeps us disconnected from God. That disconnect is caused by this thing called sin. Sin is doing things our own way. Sin is walking in disobedience to God. It's that sin that separates us from God. But also the Bible says the penalty of that sin is death. But you see, it didn't stop there because God in his grace sent his only son Jesus to die on the cross so that you and I didn't have to pay that penalty. You see, God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. When Jesus died on the cross, he took on himself what you and I were due for our sin. It's as simple as this. We did the crime, but Jesus, he paid the fine. You see, God is extending to every single one of us today His grace, forgiveness for your past, a new life right now, and a hope for your future and eternal life with Him in heaven. But it means we must turn away from sin, repent from sin, and turn to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus for everlasting life. And so if that's you today and you're saying, I don't want to do life my way no more. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I want to come into relationship with God. I want to, I want to say yes to Jesus. If that's you, I'm going to count to three and I want you to raise your hand and you can put it down straight away. And you don't need to be shy or afraid in here. Nobody in this room was born holy. We are all sinners who have been saved by grace. But we need you to know that we're right here for you and we've got your back. But I'm going to count to three and I want you to raise your hand and you can put it down today if that's you today. One, God loves you. Two, he's speaking to your heart right now. Three, raise your hand. Thank you, I see that hand. Thank you, I see that hand. Amen. Thank you, I see that hand. I want you to do one more thing for me. I want you to repeat this prayer after me. And I need you to know this prayer doesn't save you. Jesus Christ saves you. This prayer is just an expression of you putting your faith and your trust in Jesus. So let's, let's pray and repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and into my life. I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer this morning, we're so proud of you. Congratulations and welcome home. God bless.